I used to work in the rock and roll scene, like um, as like a roadie, like a local yes, crew you did. on all the big rock and roll shows and all that in Melbourne for a company called Gig Power. And I'm still linked with that scene. And I did that. I worked in that scene for like, you know, almost 10 years. So that was quite a big part of my life. And Big bands? Huge bands. Everyone, Rolling, Stone, Rolling Stones, ACDC, you name it, man. Jamaica? Fucking Kiss, Pearl Jam. So I had all crazy things. Some, some band, you know, with Oasis, I went in their dressing room and drank with them. What are, what were um, that's they not like, normal though. Were that's the brothers fighting or were they cool at the oh, time? I just sat in the corner and mind my own business because I was sort of, I buddied up with Noel's guitar tech, Jason. Um, but so yeah, I've got a lot of crazy stories um, from that time. And uh, if, you, if you, I don't know if you've got a website for this, but I could put a link to an article I wrote for a music magazine about one of my sure. funniest sort of roadie stories. So we can, we can put that. Um, or you could tell us now. Um, okay. <laughs> we got <laughs> tangents, <laughs> tangents. <laughs> Where was it? I was going to do the... Um, I'm interested in you being in the dressing room with the Gallagher brothers. Oh, yeah. That was crazy. I tell you, it was funny. Madeline West was there. Do you remember her? She yes. Was, she was a wonderful actress, a great yeah, person. She got hit by a bus as well. She did. Someone fucking robbed her purse while she was lying there unconscious, which yeah, is terrible. She, she, was in, uh, she was in Underbelly, the, mm. the first one. And yeah. uh, I met her in 2002 when I was gigging at the Comics Lounge. She was very good that at was improv. The, that would have been... 2002, I reckon. The boys the... opened the lounge 2001, 2002. And Madeline West was part of an improv, improv crew with Cam Knight. A really good really? improv crew. Yeah, very talented. And then she was doing stand-up off on the side. And, and then she was she was a trained actor, I think, at the time. But anyway, yeah. the Gallagher brothers. Oh, so, she, so that was at the Forum in Melbourne, right? right. It was, I, so I was sort of near the... I was sort of... A, it's called the local crew is roadies who aren't actually touring with the band, right? So they can't, they have to employ a couple of people in every town. Yep. And I was near the top of the food chain of the local crew in the sense that I got the gigs where you get to do stuff during the show. Usually that's doing the changeover for the support band, um, who were a band for the Oasis. I think it was a band called Motor Race. Do you remember them? No. Anyway. Um, so and, and you just do little shit like that. Anyway, so um, I was one of, it was me and another guy. Me and my mate Rocky were the two local crew stagehands that were working on Oasis at the Forum and a fucking stunning shows. I think there was a couple of them. Beautiful venue and, you know, um, the shows were sick and I got friendly with all the with all their touring crew and all that kind of thing. And then on the last night, Jason and uh, Noel's Guitar Tech invited me down to the, the green room and just handed me a big fucking can of Sapporo, which was what, what they had on their rider. And I just sat in the corner for like 10 minutes just watching. But I remember Madeline West was there and, uh, you know, there was like probably 20, 20, 30 hangers on down there, you know, like the after show fucking VIP crowd. And, and then I saw her leave. And then the next day in the Herald Sun, there was like a little article that Madeline, you know, in like the showbiz rumors column that, um, you know, Madeline West had been seen leaving the forum with Noel Gallagher. And I was like, that's fucking bullshit. Like she's made that up herself. You know what I mean? Her PR person's made that up because yeah, I saw right. her fucking leave on her own. And right. the boys were sitting comfortably on the couch when she left. Yeah, there they're you fucking, go. They're fucking probably watching fucking football or something. That's a good PR agent, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's a good little PR one. Um, they probably do that with all the actors. Say, so just go to a gig and we'll say that you got seen leaving with the lead singer. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Any other interesting stories? Because I remember speaking again with Colin Cole, and he was telling me that he was a bodyguard for a lot of bands that used to come out here in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah he was a bodyguard. He was a bodyguard for Danny Minogue. Yeah, and I went through the list, and I went, what's Danny Minogue like? And he'd stare up at the ceiling, and he goes, promiscuous. I, went, <laughs> so All right. I remember hearing that. What about Kylie Minogue? He goes, Kylie Minogue owns 50 houses in Richmond. I'm like, really? fuck. Fucking hell, she's loaded. got almost as many as the Pettingles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I said to him, I wonder uh, if they've all got a fucking. I wonder if it's like fifty houses in a row with a hole in them all, and they just pass the fucking, yeah. <laughs> pass the fucking the glitter. Um, I worked. I worked on about twelve Kylie shows. That that was actually a highlight of my um my local crew career. Was working on bit. That was one of the longest runs of gigs at Rod Laver Arena ever. At that point, mm. I think it was twelve shows in a row and. Yeah, she was awesome, Kylie. She's fucking tiny. You could put her in a po in your pocket. You know what That's I mean? That's what he said. He yeah. said, "Well, Colin's seven foot six foot seven, but he said, yeah, she's uh, once you see her without heels on, changing in the oh, back in costumes. Yeah, she's tiny. It's like a little Coles thing. Yeah, well, she. Um, I one one part of my gig in that during the show, she would be above us playing. Um, like I think it was her number one song at the time. Na 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 na. Na, 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 na. Then she would oh, yeah, come under the stage and there was four of us there and there was a white grand piano and on each corner of the piano was like a turny thing 
like with a winch. Fuck knows why it was like that. But but the the whoever our boss was, he would look us. She would sit at the piano. She'd look us all in the eye to say, "I'm ready," and then we'd all wind, and she would come from below. You know what I mean? So the grand piano's rising up for the next song. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was a pretty cool little bit. That's cool as. Oh, there's a bit I do in my stand up. It's actually true. But one night, my mate dared me to have a wank in the in the fucking <laughs> in the in the period between when she had to come down, and I. Where would, where, where, I can't where? believe I'm telling Just you this. Just there, side oh, of like, stage. No, we're under the stage. And under the stage is quite a quite so, a vast area. So while Kylie's belting out a tune, no, 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 you're, no, you're no, wanking no. underneath the stage. Yeah, I did, I did it, which is <laughs> fucking insane, really. That's hilarious. Because you can find little dark nooks and crannies in it, in a, in a, underneath the stage, Come basically. Come into my... So, and we all used to wear those. Um, We went through this... I don't think we did it for the whole run, but for a few shows we had those stupid Billy Bob joke teeth. Yeah. And um and when Kylie would look us in the face to go like I'm ready, we'd all smile with that. Uh, so we'd all look like <laughs> fucking inbreds, and she just had this look of shock on her face, like what? The f- where the fuck did they get this crew from? You know what I mean? Um, but anyway, oh, that's great. Uh, the story that I that that I was gonna yeah give you the link for that I wrote up for a music magazine over in the UK. Um, was about when I worked on Kiss at Rod, also at Rod Laver Arena. God, I spent I spent my early twenties at Rod Laver Arena, man. Honestly, did but you meet the band? Who? Kiss. You. Kiss. Did you? When you say meet the band, man, like you like it's a very professional atmosphere where you like if you're the True, kind of person yeah, that yeah. tries. To, bearing in mind two things: this is before camera phones, and secondly, if you're the kind of person that tries to talk to um, famous people, you, you don't get anywhere in that industry. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You can't do that, right? So um, on occasion. Um, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. On, they've got enough on occasion. Famous people have said something to me, let alone right? a roadie. Yeah. Oh, they, you'll get sat. You get, get sat. You get the bullet straight away. Man. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I actually this I is emba- this that. is embarrassing, but this is um at that Oasis gig at the Forum, we were watching. I'm fairly fairly certain it was Motor Race with support, and I was actually standing directly next to Liam, right? And I'm I'm a fucking big Oasis fan. I'm a proper Oasis fan, right? Got into Oasis in '94 when they first come out. And I actually brought a cassette back. I was backpacking over in Europe and I brought a cassette back of Definitely Maybe. And I like to think I was like the first Oasis fan in Australia. Right? And All right, there you go. You heard it here. <laughs> that's right. And um, I said to Liam, he's standing right next to me watching motor race. And I said, what do you think of them? And he went, yeah, they're all right, man. And then he just walked away because you could tell who's this fucking stagehand talking to me. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. And I was like, oh, I'm a dickhead. I yep. should have just fucking said nothing. So in, in that, I've been around a lot of very i've been a I, I was i was me to you away from keith richards and ronnie wood having a fucking argument man which is a one of my all-time greatest what memories. were they arguing over um because at the Someone t- t- i actually know but i didn't know at the time but um because they were here for like four nights or something so i was there every night so so you, the, you become friends with the with their crew with the touring crew and a bit and a band like the rolling stones has like 70 to 80 guys touring the world with them Holy shit. Oh, yeah, it's a big fucking crew, right? Uh, so their own crew? Yes. Wow. Oh, it's a big operation, man. Like, you're Actually, talking yeah, like, I get that. I know, a fucking Iron Maiden have their own plane that they fly right. at a gig. My so, friend yeah. tours with them, yeah. My, my friend Onion tours with them. They've got a plane with the, yeah, the, um, Bruce Dickinson flies it, of course. Yes. He flies it. So my, my friend my friend Owen, or Onion is his rock and roll name, he, he flies in that plane. He does all the, I toured Australia with him with Little Britain Live. So, so some of, I'm mates with a lot of guys who are at that level, Okay, but I, but I became a comedian instead. I was at the apex of going to that next level with being a roadie. Mm-hmm. I toured Australia for, for seven weeks with Little Britain Live. So ironically, the biggest tour I ever did was actually a comedy show, inverted commas comedy show. Yeah. Um, and, but before you get to that, go back to uh, Keith Richards and what were they, what was Keith Richards? Oh, right. Who was he fighting with again? So obviously like after the show or the next night, I like talked to one of my buddies in the, in the, um, in the Rolling Stones touring crew. And I was like, man, I, I, fucking Keith and Ronnie were having an argument last night. Who's when, the other guy? Ronnie. Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood. Yeah. I love Ronnie Wood. He, uh, you know, he's the, he's the guitarist. He's the other guitarist in the Rolling Stones. What were they arguing about? And so as they, so they used to go out, so they would go, there's the main stage. And then for three songs, they would go out to like a little, what we call a satellite stage out in the audience. Yeah, sure. And they'll do three songs. And then, and then they would always leave that stage and they would go out the side arena door and they would walk back to the main stage down a corridor inside the arena, right? And so I knew that. So I would always accidentally go for a cup of tea to catering 
when because I, when I knew they would be coming down that hallway, right? And so I I walked in the hallway and they're coming towards me and I can hear fucking and I can see Keith and Ronnie because they they walk in a funny um well when I was working with them. Mick Jagger would always be walking way in front, Keith and Ronnie in the middle, and Charlie Watts way at the back. Look at you, you fucking groupie. You've worked it out. No, nah, I'm not a groupie, but I'm a, I'm a I'm a fan, and and I've yeah I've been around that shit. But uh yeah, Keith Richards is that Keith has gone to Ronnie. Fuck your fucking hand, Ronnie. Fuck your fucking hand, like that, right? And I'm like, what the hell was that about? So I told one of the touring crew the next night. I'm like, fuck your oh, fucking hand. Yeah, I said, what what, do you, what what was all that about? And what it was, Ronnie Wood was a raging alcoholic. Ronnie Wood is way more hardcore than Keith Richards. Like every regular people, pick Keith Richards is a byword for drug, of course, know, drug yeah. maniac. But what they don't He's realize, the poster that, boy for drug taking. In actual rock and roll, Ronnie Wood is known as the way more hardcore one. Right? You're joking. No, he's way more hardcore. So even as Keith Richards put it put it himself, you know, um, in his book, like he likes to ease his way into the day. Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood's alarm goes off and he does a shot of Black Zambor. You know? Fuck. No, no, he's a hardcore guy. So, but he's so on that tour, um, Mick Jagger wouldn't let him go on tour unless he uh, so, he had to sign like a contract to not drink for two years, right? Because their tours go for two years. They're fucking mm. massive fucking endeavors. So he was sober at that time for two years, and he's sober again now, by the way. Um, but and apparently, what it was, Keith was still drinking, and after the show on the first night or whatever it was, the night before, um, Keith had been winding Ronnie up about being sober and he like he was pissed and he jumped on Ronnie's back and he pulled Ronnie over and Ronnie had fallen on his hand and he so he damaged his hand for playing mm. and apparently that's what the fuck you'll fuck it because apparently as they were coming off Ronnie was obviously going to him like me fucking hands fuck because you knocked me over last night and he's going fuck your fucking hand so there you go <laughs> so I did find out what it was about <laughs> and great. um I also yeah I actually uh, facilitated like I had a friend that was yeah, I basically, I had a friend who used to grow weed back then and he, we facilitate, I, I was, I facilitated, um, a big fucking deal to the, um, Rolling Stones crew. So they bought a whole pound. Uh, help me with my mathematics. Uh, 16 ounces. An ounce is 28 grams. Yeah. So it's like, cause there's like fucking 80 guys on the crew. So, Holy so, shit. so my mate sold them a pound and I, wa- I literally watched them backstage that night, take half of it, wrap it in cling film and fucking build it into a very light, m- big moving light. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And because um, I was sort of in with them at that point because I'd got them this fucking really good weed that my mate had just grown, right? And um, fucking they built it into a... Ve- I don't know if I'm incriminating here or if we could get sued or what, but nah. I, um, they were taking that to Japan. Wow. Because you can't get fucking dope in Japan. It was very, very, very difficult. But anyway, they I was very popular on that crew because um, because they weren't big fans of the dope in Australia, and my mate had just fucking harvested and cured this immaculate bud, wow, and um, sorted everyone out. But anyway, we've gone off piste here. Um, no, that's fine. So did they play? So you 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 facilitated a deal for the Rolling Stones, yeah. And then the last thing you mentioned before you went off on the Rolling Stones was Kiss. You were within, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that 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 was probably the most sort of. Um, what you call infamous thing that I was involved in on the local crew uh, that I, I worked same same deal I worked on a whole run of Kiss shows um, doing and that was a really fun show to work on because we had like really mad stuff to do like we used to have to fire confetti cannons mm. um, during I think it was Detroit Rock City the song and I remember I got the cue wrong once so you got <laughs> headphones on like this and you've got this confetti cannon you got this like um, lever that turns it on and yeah. it was like something like it was like, when he goes into the fucking drum solo, that's when you go. But I got it wrong, and I just fucking went, and like fired this confetti cannon. But there was a, a fan up the front, like, because the confetti cannon set up right at the punter barrier at the front. Yep. Some guy was leaning over, and I fucking blasted him in the face. <laughs> and fucking practically blinded the cunt. He's like got tear, fucking confetti tears. And I'd, and, I'd, and I'd done it at the wrong time as well. It was like premature ejaculation. And the fucking American guy on the cans is like, what the fuck? Who just fired that cannon? Um, but I got friendly with those guys as well, the, like as in the touring crew, and um. So there's no repercussion for misfiring a cannon. Oh, you don't lose your cannon privileges the next night or anything like you that. Can, you, you can, can. you I got, can. I got, I got, I got a warning. Man, I'm, I, this is embarrassing to admit, but on the Kylie tour, you know how I told you I was under the stage doing the piano. Well, originally I, I had a gig on stage where I had to run on stage, and it was like a multi-story set. 
So there was like this, um, I'm trying, like scaffolding type thing. And there was these dancers on the scaffolding and you would run on after the song. The, the dancer would unhook this bar that had like a gold curtain on it and he would chuck it to you. But I always blamed the dancer, but the bla- the dancer sort of unhooked it and threw it and it hit me in the head and I dropped it in front of 10,000 people. <laughs> what did you have to do with that? Bar? Just run off stage. Just take it off stage. Okay, got you. Yeah, yeah. So you just get on. Set change. C- change. Scenery change, right? But and you really, dropped it on your fucking head. In front of 10,000 people. And I tripped over. Because like, it, hit, it hit me in the head. So the gold curtain like went down to my feet. My feet <laughs> stepped on the curtain. I tripped and I fell. And the fucking gaffer, the boss we call the gaffer, um, was furious. And yeah, so I got the bullet from that. You're joking. That was sackable. Not like sacked sack, but sacked from that. Job. I got put under the stage. I was, very, no, I was very embarrassed at the time. So that's what led you to have a wank under the stage. Yeah. I'll show them. It was my own confetti cannon. Um, but yeah, so I was doing a similar type thing on Kiss where, uh, yeah, sorry, doing the confetti cannons, all that on Kiss, um, oh, for whatever fuck, the same guy who dared me to wank under the stage, his name, his name is Trusty and he's quite, um, sort of legendary in the, in the Melbourne roadie scene and he works for Channel 9 and he worked, he worked on the, um, footy show for years and they actually, he became, you know, on Letterman, they used to make. Um, people in the production crew part of the sort of show mm-hmm. well well my mate trusty was like that on the footy show where he was like a regular character and they actually paid for him to come over to the uk and um compete in the world stinging nettle eating championships in devon and um so i actually caught up with trusty when he came to participate in the world stinging nettle eating champions and and the footy show paid for it anyway so it was trusty that used to do all this crazy stuff um, and occasionally or I would encourage just, you to do crazy stuff. He would usually be the one to do it, but I would sometimes do crazy stuff just to go like, Hey, trusty, check it out. You know, what would trusty's tricks be? Oh, what? he wanked under the stage at the Logies while they were presenting the gold Logie. <laughs> it's fucking cooked. What year? Who oh, I the... would have been like 2000, 2001 or something. Um, oh, fuck, man. He got sacked from the fucking Wiggles fucking tour for. Don't tell me doing the same thing. Nah, I don't oh, think Jesus. it was. But he got. <laughs> Thank fuck. Uh, he toured with the Shaolin. Anyway, we're going off piece. We're going to go off piece a lot. That's fine, man. But Kiss. Oh yeah, on Kiss. Just to tell you the brief version. Like, I'd like you to read the written version because it's a good story and it's a good insight into what that world is really like. Well, send me the link. I'll, um, I'll post I will, it. I will. But basically, I. Trusty set me up to do this and the Americans kind of were like, yeah, it's all right. And at the, just as Kiss finished their last note and walked off, I ran across the stage in an orange G-string, a purple bra, and I had Kiss written on my ass and the whole crowd cheered and all that. This is before camera phones and that. You know oh, what that's I mean? be, great. Oh, my boss was fucking rope. I was properly fired that time. Yeah. Like as in you're fucking dead, you're never working for us again. And... um. Yeah, that was basically the Yanks came in and saved me. Like the, the Americans, you know, got wind of the fact I was going to be fired, and uh, they went into bat for me, and I, I, my job was saved. But my boss was basically like, "If you ever pull a stunt like that again, you're fucking gone." But anyway, and who were the Yanks in this story? What were they? The the, the they're the touring crew. Oh, the touring crew. Yeah. Okay, so they you were hired under them. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Local crew. Yeah, but um, American roadies are like they're hardcore man. Like they're all really good at their job for a start. Mm. It's amazing how many. There's heaps of ex-military in the rock and roll crew scene. Loads. Yeah. Because yeah. military guys, man. It makes sense. I, know it, I, I can understand ex-military Because they're just great at logistics, man. Oh, okay. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, just right. getting things. And a lot of them have got trades. So, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of people in rock and roll, you've got to have a, a lot of them have trades. Like, they might be sparkies. They might be carpenters. They might be, you know what I mean? Or, or all of those. So, yeah, there, there is quite a lot of um, ex-military dudes in that scene and also a lot of people who are musicians and in bands themselves and didn't quite make it and then their friend you know but they're good at all the tech stuff so mm. they look after the guitars and the backline the instruments and all that anyway oh the story i wanted to tell you about the comics lounge was so it's it's i moved in 99 i got into the rock and roll scene 99 it's 2000 i'm living in north melbourne and i'm coming home from a gig at festival hall which we used to call festering hole <laughs> and um I did, did quite a few shows there over the years. I did Pantera there. That was a fucking... Wow, that, that would have been awesome. Yeah, that was a fucking crazy one, man. Pantera was... I, I sorted out another fucking... <laughs> another drug deal for them. <laughs> what did they want again? Another, a, like, dope or... 
an ounce of dope and a fucking gram of pure speed. Jeez. And um, that explains the hard, fast playing. Okay, so I'll tell you this story because it's actually pretty crazy. Um, so what happened was the guitar tech was like, yeah, I'll sort you out on the fucking um, loadout, right? And uh, come loadout time, oh, by the way. What does loadout time mean? Loadout means after the show when you're loading out, when you're when, okay. you, when yep. you pack, pack packing the show up. down, yep. like, let's go. So um, load like the support band were a, a Melbourne metal band called the Wolves. And then loads of, loads of, loads of my crew, loads of the local crew, were sort of heavy metal guys and lots of lots of crew guys playing bands, right? And obviously they're all into Pantera, so so it was a big presence backstage of local metal guys, right? Who who were there on not just working but with backstage passes and shit, right? So I've sorted out through a friend. I've I've sorted out um, this stuff that they wanted, and then the guy was like, the American guy was like, oh, I'll give you the money on the loadout. Then come the loadout time, he just fucking blanks me. I'm like, hey, yo, mate. He just walks past me like I'm nobody. Right, so then I'm like, hey, again, try and get his fucking attention. No, have just, you given him the gear at this stage? Yeah, I've given it to him on the load in. Oh god! Because it, again, what used to happen is they go, man, we're look at you, do you know anyone? And someone would go, oh, Rowie knows someone, and then I'd just make a call and get dropped off. Right? Sure. So I fucking fronted the money myself. Right? How much were you down now? What What was the invoice? Yeah, like close <laughs> to five hundred dollars. You know the best thing about the Americans, man? They'd be they used to go, and this is twenty years ago. They used to go, hey, man, can I pay you in USD? Like they'd they'd say, can I pay in US dollars? Yeah, which is great. And they would just give you one for one, right? Because it was they they'd always roadies always carry fair. Like roadies used to always have massive wads of cash on them, right? Because they get per they used to get cash spending money every day. You still do in the rock and roll touring scene. You get what's called PDs per diems. That's spending money. Okay. And on a big tour like that, they get like 120 USD a day, right? And they, right. They accumulate it, and that's what they spend on fucking coke and hookers and shit, right? The so, roadies. Yeah, of course. And um, so so they they couldn't... You know what Americans are like, man. They, they, don't, they don't want to deal with local money. They don't want to change money. So they, if an ounce was 280 300 bucks Australian, they would just give it to you in USD because they, they didn't even... Which is 500 They wouldn't even work you. out. Yeah, back then it was, yeah. Mm. Anyway, so I had... So this guy ignored me and one of my mates who was um, a lead singer of a... Melbourne metal band called Premonition, right? His name was Chris Barrow. If there's any uh, heavy metal Melbourne listeners. Um, and I stopped Chris and I said, hey man, like I sorted this guy out. I sorted these guys out, you know, before the show. This was Pantera. Yeah. I saw, this was fucking Diamond Daryl, right? This is Diamond Daryl's guitar tech I'd sorted out. And I said, this guitar tech is now ignoring me. And Chris Barrow goes, oh mate, he goes, you should never give American metal bands anything on tick because they're just cunts. He oh, goes, wow. they know they're fuck. He goes, they know they're just fucking leaving, you know, leaving town tonight and you're not going to be able to do anything. He said, leave it with me, right? So he fucking disappears, comes back like half an hour later, just hands me 500 bucks, right? He's taking care of it for me, right? I said, man, you're a fucking champion. How's this? Two crazy things to this story. That night, Chris Barrow, the lead singer of Premonition, who got me my money, went home and hung himself. That was his last night on earth. In his last hours on earth, he went and fucking debt collected for me, which is crazy. Holy fuck. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. So we reckon he, he wasn't a close friend of mine, I'll, I'll, um, but full respect. I worked with him um, for, for a little time and he was a lovely guy. And I know um, still upset. A lot of people I know were very um, obviously upset by that. And he had a baby. and But anyway, so full respect to that guy. And so I'll, before he went home, the last thing he did was got you your money. I don't know if it was the last thing, but it was certainly one of the last things he did. Wow. Um, so I'll, I'll always have a fond memory of that. Can and I here's ask, a how, crazy... Um, how another, did he get your money back? Did he just front the lead singer or the guitarist and or the guitar tech from Pantera and say, I want give him the money? Yeah, I don't think he nutted Phil Anselmo, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, fuck knows, man. I, th I think he probably just went, listen, man, fucking, you know, my mate. Blah, blah, you know, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so, because those guys all knew him as a, as a, as a singer, right? He was a mm. singer, Chris Barrow. Um, oh, they, they were out of control, that band that night. They were fucking crazy, man. Phil Anselmo was blind and they were doing, they had like a tray that probably had 40 shots of bourbon on it, right? For a band of like four or five guys. Wow. Um, and the crazy thing is that like two years later, some nutcase jumped on stage and fucking shot Diamond Daryl dead. You know really? about that? Yeah, fucking, no way. Oh, fucking at a gig in America. In America. Yeah. Fuck. So, 
crazy entity. Maybe story. he owed him money as well. And, and I just listen. I've back. got an alibi, right? <laughs> I didn't. I don't. I got nothing to do with that guy. But all I'm saying is, you burn Roe Campbell, you pay the price. <laughs> um. So so I'm coming home from Festival Hall, and I don't think it was the Pantera night, but let's, it could have been. Fuck knows. It's um. I remember it was year two thousand. I'm walking along Errol Street, and this only fucking came back to me the first time I did a gig at the Comics Lounge. And I walked in the door there, and I went, hey, man, this is the spot where fucking all those years ago, I was walking in the rain, 5 a.m., on the way back from a gig, and I saw an envelope lying on the footpath on Errol Street, and I saw a little bit of, you know, a little bit of money sticking out of it. And I quickly went, bang, picked it up, opened it, fucking color of money, right? Loads of money in it was... I ran, I ran about fucking four blocks home, got home, opened it, $280. Right? I love how you ran first. I did. I bolted. I'm like, just in case some, <laughs> just in case some guy come around the corner looking for <laughs> yeah, it. Get out of there. And, um, yeah, fuck. So, so this is the tip. first time I played at the Comics Lounge, I was like, man, this is where I found that fucking envelope, right? Wow. So um, I, I went straight upstairs, and I'd, I think I'd met Daniel before, and I go, oh, I've got a crazy story for you. I said, fucking years ago, man, like I was walking out. I was walking out the front of here at five o'clock in the morning. I found an envelope with 280 bucks. And he started going, man, I've got a vague fucking memory of someone saying they lost their fucking... And then he sat and because worked it a, out. a support spot is 70 bucks. Yeah, well, he worked it Seven out. Seven fours are 28. Nah, he That's said something... That's a run of four nights. I think he, th- he... He seemed to think it was at a point where it was 100, 180 or something. Like two nights okay. at 100 and All a right. night at 80. Well, this is going back. Or yeah, early two thousand. It was something like that. So I put a thing on the Facebook Melbourne forum, and I was like, "Listen, man, like it's um, I've I found an envelope. You know, I've just been reminded of this thing that happened, and if you can legit somehow prove to me that that envelope with two hundred and eighty dollars was yours, I will fucking do the right thing and I'll give it back to you. And then I'll put asterisk unless you're Greg Fleet." <laughs> <laughs> null and void null and void <laughs> but I uh, love you Fleety love you mate but I thought uh, Fleety will see this and he'll be like oh, that was mine yeah, but. for sure silence so, ne- no, never no got takers to, never got to the bottom of it nah oh but, good thank yeah, fuck you thank, kept oh, it I know I know that's great it's good to be seen to be doing the right thing but I didn't actually want to do the right thing so why did you get out of roading like, what happened there? Because it sounds like you're having a blast, man. Like, just lots of fun, good yeah, money. Yeah. Oh, that was a fucking great thing to do. You know, as far as I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I've had, I'm glad that I got to do roadie and comedy because... How did that come to an end, though? Like, because you were having so much fun. Did you decide, nah, I've got to transition. I've got to get onto stage and do stand-up. I was a bit in the dead end sector of it, though. You know what I mean? No. Like, um, I don't know. What... Well, I wasn't. I wasn't in the big time tour. Well, like I say. What was okay. the big time? You're doing Kiss, you're doing Kylie, you're doing Pantera. Yeah, but only local. I wasn't touring with them. Okay. So then, but it's a, it's a weird story. So I, I'm, I went over to the UK to be with a chick in Scotland and I was in Edinburgh and this is 2003 and she was working nights. She was working nights almost every night. So I started, to, and it was during the festival and I started to go out mm. and just watch comedy gigs as something to do. Did you know at this point you wanted to do stand-up? No, no. I, I'd ne- barely ever been to comedy in my life. Oh, wow. But I started to get into it. And I was like, oh, this is really good, you know? Yeah. And um, the the next year, I stayed in Edinburgh with that girl. And the next year, I, I got into the local rock and roll scene. So I was doing the same stuff over there, right? Rock yep. and roll stuff, right? And so the 2004, I was working on the Edinburgh Fringe, like doing lights and sound and rigging and stuff setting up venues and all that kind of thing so then i got even more immersed in it and it was in that in fact i'll tell you weirdly i met jamoan that year because all the aussies used to gravitate and hang out at the spiegel tent right and i knew a bunch of i don't know how i knew people there i think my first contact was a techie guy who worked for puppetry the penis and his name was disco stew and he used to be on the roadie crew with me here so I think he was my first inroad. Oh, and plus the guy who manages the Spiegel tent, Brett Haylock, was an old mate of mine from back in Adelaide from fucking donkeys 25, 26 years ago. So I gravitated towards the Spiegel tent to hang out socially. And that's where loads of Aussies used to hang out at that time. Like even I remember Jim Jeffries hanging around there and fucking Jamoan was there. And so I got friendly with Jamoan and his manager at the time was a guy called Marcus Jones. And um, one time Jamoan was like, where's your show at? And I was like, what do you mean? I don't have a show. I'm a fucking 
I didn't call myself a techie, but I was like, I'll work behind the scenes. And um, techies are fucking lazy cunts that like cups of tea every half an hour, right? <laughs> um, no, ro- roadies frown on anything theatre type. Roadies are all about doing things bang, 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 you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Theatre's different because theatre shows go in and stay in a venue for a long time, so they're more like laid back. You know okay, I mean? yeah. Whereas um, roadies are... Always on the move. Yep, setting up, packing up. Yeah, and on t- everything's got to be on time and everything's got to be done properly. It's very fucking high work ethic. Hence the military. Hence the military, mate, gotcha. for sure. Um, and that's a funny thing in roadie world is that being intoxicated on an alcohol is an absolute no-no. But mm. you can be on anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So you can be smoking weed, you can be high on coke, but if you've got alcohol in your breath, man, see you later. You're yeah. gone. Um, but- Jamoan. Yeah, so he was like, where's your show? And I'm like, I don't have a show. And he's like, oh, fuck, I just thought you were a comedian. You know, you're f- I've reeled this story out a few times, by the way. And he might have just been humoring me for all I know. Yeah. But, but I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, you're, you're a fucking natural, you know. You should do comedy. And I, I said to him, mate, I promise you I'm going to give it a go. Because I had been watching loads of it at this point, right? It was my second festival. So Jamoan pushed you to, f- to your first gig, in a way. I believe so. We're, wow. you gotta, you got you to gotta remember, like, did, was he Jamoan really... Is, all I can say about Jamoan is I've gigged with him several times and he's absolute salt-of-the-earth quality. Like, he will hang out with you backstage and just shoot the shit. Oh, yeah, very totally. Very laid-back, cool and guy. I, and he knows very well this story. And, you know, he, he always, whenever... You know, I, I, I know him reasonably well now. You know, I've hung out with him for years and years, you know. Um, he's got a funny little thing he always says. He always goes, I gave you the notion... I gave you the notion, you and Eric Banner. Oh, he, really? Yeah, he reckons he can. And I always go, Eric Banner, never heard of the cunt. What yeah, happened to him? What right? happened to him? Um, so apparently he fucking encouraged Eric Banner to get into stand-up and myself. So that's pretty crazy. But yeah, so I pretty much said, listen, man, I'm going to fucking give stand-up a go. And if the next time you see me, I haven't done it, fucking smack me. And that was, that was actually really good for me because I was always the kind of person that put things off and, you know, didn't. And... I legit was like, well, I've promised a really great comedian, you know, that I'm going to do stand-up, so I have to. And from that, from August 2004, I just studied, like I went to comedy like four nights a week. I went to the big comedy club in Edinburgh all the time. And I was writing, writing, and I was I wrote loads of material. Most of it was dog shit, of course. Mm. Um, and then I did my first gig six months later. But because at that point I was 29 and I'd been watching comedy for a couple of years, I would say for a starter, for a newbie, I was pretty strong. I got paid for my fourth gig ever. Wow. And from then... It took from, me three years to get money. And from that point on, I mostly got paid for my... I was very lucky. I got paid for my kind of open mics. because Because they were able to put me on a bill at all those but shitty gigs. At all those shitty little pub gigs in the provinces, they could stick me on for 50 quid and call the bill international. You know what I yes. mean? Yes. So my um, coming up phase was, was mostly paid, which was very, very fucking fortunate and, un- and uncommon lucky. as well. Very uncommon. Um, so like, extremely uncommon. So that's pretty crazy. So um, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, I ran into Jamal as I, as I do on an annual basis at one, you know, at one festival and I always run into him Edinburgh, Adelaide, Melbourne, you know. And uh, I said, fucking Jamal. And I said, one day I'll be living under a fucking bridge and I'll be cursing the day I ever met you, you know. I'll yeah. be like, that fucking Jamoan cunt telling yeah. me I could be a comedian. Yeah. Look where it's got me, you know. I'm warming my hands over the fucking 44-gallon drum. Yeah. And, he, and he looks at me and he goes, and the thing I like about you, Royce, you're never that far away from the bridge. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely true at the time, man. Well, when you were drinking a lot. Fucking very true, man. You were very wired. Yeah, I was just, you know, my life was chaotic and, I, you know, you know how it was. You're always getting cash gigs. It was like, I would always just have, yeah, like most of the money in the world would be on me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I didn't keep a lot in the bank. And what's the thing? I lived with you for a short while. Like, what's the deal with bananas? What's the deal with bananas? Why can't I <laughs> eat your bananas? All right. Oh, yeah, we had a couple of... um. No, we had a ma- no. The big row I remember with you with food was I'd cook this huge pot of delicious uh, Jamaican style um, curried lamb, lamb curry. It was fucking and nice. We all ate it, and it was delicious. And there was still like half a pot left. And mm. I went through, and it was gone. I said, "Where's the curry?" And you said, "Oh, I chucked it in the bin, mate. I thought we were finished." And I'll, just, I'll never get up. I, I did lose it. I went fucking Johnny almost cried. 
But I, I, I just couldn't fathom how anyone could just throw something in the bin that's just been cooked. Like, it was still warm. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. But <laughs> well, we've been through it. The banana to... thing, I don't know. I, I used to have a real OCD about um, yeah, because I went having I... a banana first thing in the morning. Yeah, but, but you were like, these are my bananas. <laughs> I'm gonna put them somewhere away from your fruit, and just yeah, don't touch my bananas. <laughs> and I thought you were doing a bit because I'm like he's being funny, but then you were like. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just don't touch my bananas. I, I don't, yeah, I do take, I can sometimes go a bit too serious with shit like that. Um, but, you know, it was all fun. We all got along. I know, oh, I had some I've very funny really, times. I've never really man. lived with a psycho. I'm lucky. I've never lived with a psycho. I'm sure maybe you've lived with a psycho. Well, the guy that moved into that place after you was an actual psychopath. I, I lived with Colin. Colin and told I, me, yeah. I only lived there for about four days because he was an actual psychopath who did the old, like, trying to turn Colin against me thing and started, like, just saying mad shit. Like, oh, things are gone missing and all this. And I was like, Colin, this guy's not right. And I just moved out because I was like, and it ended badly for Colin. I, I warned Colin. I said, he wasn't paying Colin nah. in the end. He didn't pay him anything. He was a he nutter. He fucked him over. He used, to, he used to go, oh, I'm off to work now. And then Colin would be on the bus and see him outside the pub. You know what I mean? With Holy a beer in his hand. shit. Yeah, he, he was no good. Anyway. So there you go. Have you ever lived in a comedian chair house? Just what I experienced in London. Just like that. Oh, I, oh, yeah. What am yeah. I talking about? Yeah. I'd never lived with a comic. I lived in a house in Manchester with like four or five comedians. That was pretty crazy. It's it's a lot of fun if you're in your early 20s. Yeah, I was in my fucking mid-30s. Yeah, n- not fun. Yeah, it was all right for a while, but then it became, yeah, then it, it got a bit got a bit old. But anyway, in fact, I, I, actually, I'll tell you something crazy, that one of the guys I lived with, and he's a funny guy, man. He, he was actually a great guy to live with, and he was like a veteran road comic as well from Canada. His name was Marty McLean, and I don't know if you ever came across him. But no, I, just, I, I know Mike Wilmont, Ron Vaudry. He knows all of them, right? And he's an old mate of Tom Stades. And and um, and I live with I live with Marty, and Marty sort of, you know, he was a bit of a, bit of a chancer and whatnot, and he ended up having a sort of a breakdown at, at a festival, like a, a drug-induced mental breakdown on stage. He <laughs> collapsed on stage. But collapsed. it was kind of like a panic attack, though. Fuck. And, um, what, mid-set? He, he got carried off stage in it uh, by stretcher but he'd just taken like a whole gram of mdma oh jesus yeah. what so, are you doing and he had a big meltdown and he was going oh, i'm a fucking asshole man i'm gonna quit comedy i'm going back to canada i'm gonna be a plumber and we were just saying me and my girlfriend at the time, that's like, gold yeah we were like listen <laughs> man you're just having a big come down because yeah, he was like he was like a big drinker he was like an alcoholic basically but he wasn't a drug guy but Get, but someone gave him a bag of Mandy and he just took the whole lot like an alcoholic. Do you know what I mean? Whoa. And it fucked him. And I'm like, mate, you're just having a bad reaction to drugs and, you know, like um, everything is going to be all right in a few days. But he legit just went back to Manchester, packed up and went back to Canada and actually got into the construction game. And now he's sober. He's been sober like six years, I think. He's a builder. You know, he owns a house. He got his life together, basically. But he called me um, on Facebook Messenger about, Oh, we were in the lockdown last year. It was in October. I remember because we were just about to come out of the long lockdown. And he and he had burned me for a few hundred quids worth of bills. And he said, man, I feel bad about that. And he fucking squared me up. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah there, there's uh, something interesting I find that once you... People that leave stand-up for good actually build wonderful lives. They, <laughs> they, they get a mortgage. They settle down. They have a family. It's possible, man. It's possible. It's it's almost like this curse that we're we're under, this spell that we're under called stand up, is like robbing us of uh, ever settling down. Or... See, it's funny you say that because I've noticed a few people reacted quite weird at Melbourne Comedy Festival when I told them that I was retraining. You know, and it was almost you can't like leave. Yeah, it is a bit like oh, you you're, can't le- leave. you're escaping the cult, or you know, your dream has died, or anything. But I'm like, no, I'm feeling like more positive than I have in years, and I yeah. still love. Here's the thing: if there was a great, like a good quality stand-up comedy club around the corner from my house, like, like I was lucky to come up at a, a club in Scotland called The Stand, and in yes. my opinion, The Stand is one of the best comedy clubs anywhere in the world. Absolutely, it's a little basement. It runs seven days a week. It's all fully professional. It's just such a great place. Some of the best comedians in the world rate it as their favorite comedy club, you know. And um, yeah, it's very good. And I was lucky to be able to just go down there whenever I wanted and all the rest of it. So it's a big. Um, it, it's hard for me to not have a place like that to hang out anymore. But yeah, if I did, I would that. still do that all the time. But yeah. I don't have that. Like, yeah, I can go down the comics lounge, but it's not the same for me. And I'm not, 
you know, I'm not, I'm a nobody here and all that kind mm. of thing. But, but, um, in terms of taking a big step back and stand up, not being central to my life anymore, I, I'm actually much more relaxed. I've got much less anxiety because I, I, I suffered quite bad from overthink, you know, getting anxious about tonight's gig or tomorrow's gig or whatever. Mm. And a lot of that was the alcohol. hundred percent it was. Uh, and I also got yeah. into some fucking big scrapes because of alcohol, you know, I got, got, in, got in, got into some crazy situations because of drinking that, that made the anxiety a lot worse. You know, I almost spent last year in prison in the Middle East because I got fucking blind drunk the day before a gig in the Middle East in Bahrain. And I fucking yeah. gave what I thought was a friendly kick up the ass to a fucking local Arab guy who turned out to be this really powerful fucking sheikh and who fucking wanted me jailed. And it was a heavy situation. What was and the context? Were you at a bar? He private members club, yeah. So you're in a private members club in Bahrain. I'd been talking to him. And apparently. was he being a dick or? No, nah, it wasn't like that. It was like, you know, that sort of Aussie larrikin thing. Like he was saying goodbye to me after I'd talked to him. I was fucking hammered. Here's the thing. Never fucking anyone who promotes comedy, never bring a comedian out the day before the show and encourage them to get pissed. It's such a stupid idea, right? Remember we did that in Malta. It's an awful idea because you you just hung over and shit. That's right. But we didn't. If we, you're going to give them a day off, give them the day off we after. We partied the show. after the show. No, we did it the day before. Oh, that's wow. Yeah, we did. I remember Malta was wild with you. We did that. That was the day before. We got away with it that time. But so I went to Bahrain and they said, "Oh, you've got the day off before the show," and then it's like, "Right, great. There's fucking nothing to do here, right?" And they said, "Oh, just come down to the club. It's everything paid for." And then they were literally encouraging me to fucking drink. And then by 7 p.m., and this is in the daytime. So in a members club in Bahrain, is that... That's the, the only place you can drink. It's the equivalent of their pubs. That's where you can drink. Yeah, because like, alcohol's not socially acceptable. Mm. Okay, um, so you're having a drink. And what's he saying Bearing in you? mind, this is a part of the world where you can go to prison for fucking nothing, right? For well, just yeah. regular Western drunken behavior, you will end up in prison, right? Yeah, fuck those countries. I hate them. Uh, so do I, man. The way they oh, treat women, everything. They're fucking the whole, oh, across the board. I'm they're never a bunch going, of cunts. Dude, I'm never going back, man. Fuck that joint. And Dubai as well. Fuck Dubai. Dubai fuck it's just a weird fucking place. All these comedians who post the photos of themselves there and like, fuck oh, Dubai. my career's on fire. It's like, man, it's a fucking shithole. Dubai's a soulless piece of oh, shit. And you've... I, every fucking other expat you meet in Dubai has been to jail for a week or two for just some... A Facebook post. Just for not a <laughs> Facebook post or fucking being drunk on the... You know, just like looking drunk on the street, whatever. I, I met a do guy... It, do they lock him up? I met a guy who went to jail because he saw a car and he thought it was his Uber. He opened the back door and got in and it was an undercover cop and they smelled the booze on him and drove him straight to the jail. You fucking no. kidding. How long did he do? Oh, like two weeks they keep you in for. Jesus. It's fucking crazy over there. So I was in a situation like that in Bahrain. Um, and basically, oh God, it was just a fucking horrible, horrible, like sort of 12 hour period. Like, like I say, so it was the larrikin thing. He said, goodbye, nice to meet you. And I went, see ya, mate. And just did the little toe tap on the ass. And it turns out there's no such thing as a friendly kick up the ass in Bahrain, right? No. Um, he didn't react at the time. It was... He let it go. Yeah, at the time. And then, an hour later, I was hanging out with the fucking manager of the club who had brought me over, the promoter. Just, to, just to press pause before you... The foot, the foot and the shoe is a very big sign of disrespect. Yeah. The pokies where I work out in the mall and when fights break out between the old Lebo men over machines, they take their shoes off and oh, whack each right, other with yeah. a shoe. Like they did with Saddam's fucking yeah, statue. Yeah, it's the ultimate sign of disrespect. So anyway, continue. So apparently that... So apparently the guy left and then he started fizzing about it. And a big part of the reason he felt disrespected was um, not just that I did that, but that I was with the manager and the manager didn't say anything to me. Right. Right. So he felt offended by the club, yeah. not just by me. So the way it is over there, if, you're, if you've got any status in society in the Middle East, there's no like trials or anything. They can just fucking pick up the phone and say, this guy disrespected me. And if you're a foreigner, mate, you are fucked. There's no judicial process. No, there's no it's judicial a matter of process. Honor. You just go to fucking jail, and then the reg regardless of being innocent, if you've just, if in the eyes of a family, a royal family, if you have disrespected them, hundred percent. Google this. Google Christ. um man in prison for touching man on hip, right? And that was one. <laughs> yeah, that, a guy went to jail for three months for touching a guy on the hip. Fucking so homophobic like, dick. So I'm like, fuck off, booted to cunt up the ass, right? I'm gonna be. Fuck. I'm. They're gonna hang me, and um. 
the promoter, the next morning, mate, the promoter was just fucking going ballistic at me. And you go, you don't realise this. Until 1pm. You haven't even done a gig yet. No, I haven't even done the gig. Oh, it's the worst feeling, man. As a comedian, you just want to make the promoter happy because he spent money bringing you out there, putting you up. You want to do a good show for him. He's raging at me before the show. Fuck. In the morning and basically saying, you might be going to jail today. And you might be going to jail for a while. And, and they won't let you out till you've paid a lot of money. And I'm Googling it and going, holy fuck, he's not exaggerating, right? And, oh, it's the worst day of my life. That, that's when I was like, you know, you know when you're in a bad scrape and you, you're in a bad situation, you're, praying, you're suddenly religious, right? Yeah. And I'm fucking praying to any God there is. You know, I'm going, Allah, can you hear me? Fucking anyone. Anyone. And I'm like, I'll oh, stop drinking, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anything if you get me out of this scrape. And by about one o'clock... He'd appease the guy. They'd done an official apology from the club. The guy said, I'll drop it. But I was still shitting myself because I was like, what if they've done a deal? Oh, by the way, I was doing a Christmas show on my own. No other comedians to take the fucking Christmas slack. in Bahrain. That's yeah, Chris, <laughs> I know. And I was doing two 45-minute halves on my own. Jeez. So I'm like, any any professional comedian out there knows 45 minutes on its own is hard, right? That's a marathon. You're doing two, right? Now, I'm... I'm in this situation where I've spent all day extremely stressed with a force 12 hangover with no, like, I didn't have any anxiety meds or any. I'm fighting off this panic attack that I'm going to be getting bum-raped by the evening in a fucking jail cell, Midnight Express And you've got to run for 90 minutes on stage. And with no other comedians to help me out, no MC, nothing. I'm Fuck. doing the whole thing. And, um, and you're thinking that that can go either way. Like, if they hate you in that first 45... The whole thing's a disaster. Right? Absolutely. I'm thinking if I die in the first 45, the cops will be there to pick me up before at the, at the break, right? What if you do well in the first 45, but then you've done all your good gear, and then you tank in the second 45, you end on a low? They're still going to hate you, right? Mm. Mate, I, I can honestly say that, that I fucking, I, I was a fucking bigger man that day. Like, I wrote, to me, that was my Gallipoli. Do you know what I mean? I fucking fought like a fucking motherfucker for the whole 90 minutes I had a man, because I had to, right? Never mentioned the ordeal. He told me, don't say a fucking thing about the ordeal. Sure. Um, well, you're a pro comic. That's and, what a pro can do. And the be- and the best thing was, Just yeah. Get it done. But that's in a room with like, you know, it was women in hijabs. There was like such a multicultural room, wow. which to be fair is my strength, right? He's playing those, is is having all the international material and all that. But that that's the most stressed I've ever been. And the best thing about that, that ordeal or the best thing about the scenario was my flight was three hours after the end of the gig. Mate, I finished that gig. I said, give me a pint. Skull the fucking pint. Told, told, because everyone was going, you're amazing, but you, you know, you should be on TV, all the usual shit they say to you. Um, I quickly told this guy, like, about the scenario the night before, just some guy in the crowd. He's like, mate, he goes, fuck, he goes, I'd be getting out of here now. He goes, because you don't know what, he goes, you don't know what it's like here. He goes, they could be waiting for you at the airport, right? And I know this sounds paranoid, but that's how it is in those places, right? No, I believe you. And here's the crazy thing. That was December 2019, and I very easily could have gone to prison had things worked out different. On yeah. Christmas Day, that was December the 20th, 2019. You can look it up, Roe Campbell. Yeah, people have received massive fines for oh, smuggling six, bacon in there. Six days later, on the 25th of December 2019, they took out like a dozen Bahraini, because they've got a big political problem there where there's people trying to fight for a fairer system against the ruling family. They took 12 guys out of their cells. They took them into the main square of the Bahrain prison and they fucking executed them Ugh. on Christmas Day, 2019, six days after I could have ended up there. Oh, and do you know why they, apparently they do it every Christmas Day. They execute a bunch of the radicals. To make room for more? Because <laughs> they don't want to build. <laughs> but no, but because Christmas Day, the Western world's looking elsewhere. They're distracted. Whoa. So that's when they do it. That's deep. A- Amnesty International having their fucking cocktail party or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, crazy shit, man. So, so I basically got to the airport. I was paranoid the whole way. I bought a, still bought a fucking six. You could buy the crazy thing is at Bahrain Airport where it's officially kind of illegal to drink. Um, it's not as illegal as other places like Bahrain. There's loopholes, right? Hence the private clubs and all that. Same in Dubai. It's like tech. Mm. It's a, put it this way. It's illegal to be drunk in those places. Mm. You can drink in certain situations, but you can't be intoxicated. So it's like. If you're intoxicated, they can... Like, a big thing they do over there is they have the breathalyzer outside the airport and they fucking ping people in rental cars who have come off flights straight in the jail. Because the ambassador to... Um, Hang on a second. So you take an international flight from Australia to Bahrain. Yeah. 
you land, you come out drunk. They'll or you've just had a couple of drinks. They'll breathalyze you if you're over. A, is it point oh five or no? It's no because it's zero zero there in their culture. You so, got to be zeros. So what? Yeah. So they could take you straight to jail for coming off a long haul flight, landing well, in Bahrain. That that's a worst case scenario, but it mainly happens with hire cars. So they wait outside and they pull westerners over in the hire car. The westerners been on a plane and had a cocktail, champagne, whatever. Blow point oh one, bang, jail. So. I've heard this from the horse's mouth because the Australian ambassador to UAE, United Arab Emirates. But how do you? But that person's come from a gentleman from a members club. Sorry, doesn't matter, mate. I, from I, a members I club met, to the airport. I met the Australian ambassador then to UAE. Then why are you allowed to drink in the members? The Australian club? ambassador of UAE came to my show in Abu Dhabi. Fucking brilliant guy. What's his name? Spiros was his surname. Brilliant guy. On the Australian on the Australian government American Express card, he bought the comedians drinks all night. None of their ambassadors came. Right. Fucking, we had an epic night with this guy, and he told me all these. I said, "What do you fucking do here?" He said, "Man, most of my job is fucking helping Aussies that have been put in jail because they were drunk." Wow. You know what I mean? And and a huge amount of them is just driven out of the airport in a high car with a tiny bit of booze on their breath. Fucking crazy, man. There was a young kid in there, and he had he brought this bottle of vodka in Canada, and it had what looked like a weed leaf in the bottom, except that it was actually a maple leaf, but it was green. They fucking locked him up for two weeks while they tested it, and then it tested negative. And the kid's crying and going, this is unjust. And he's like, this is fucking Dubai, mate. And it wasn't weed. And he freed him, but he still did two weeks. Surely the government would know that. Surely there's people that would know that. They're just trying to fuck us. Like, yeah. Yeah, fuck with our head. Tell us, don't bring your alcohol Remember here. Remember there was That's the flight the where they got all the women off and fucking stuck their fingers up their cunts to check if they were... Like, what was all that about? Yeah, it's just cunts. That's why. They're cunts, mate. Anyway, um... To all, to any fucking fans in the Middle East, I love you guys. But, uh, yeah, so so that that whole that whole incident in Bahrain was actually the beginning of me starting to think about um, getting alcohol out of my life, and I did actually stop January 2020. I stopped, and I didn't drink January 2020. But obviously, the pandemic and all that shit went down, and I was meant to go back to the UK on March the 22nd last year, but I was in Sydney doing gigs, and I, you know, we didn't. Back then, I was terrified of COVID. I thought we were all going to die. I thought I was going to die. And, you know, I'm like, I'm not going back to the UK. I'm not, not getting on that plane. And I ended up going to my sister in Brisbane. And um, uh, what was I saying that? You, uh, you went to Brisbane? Oh, so, yeah, basically, the, the no drinking thing didn't really last because... Um, yeah, I'd had pandemic stress. I had fucking end of the world anxiety. Um, yeah, sure. Every Friday, me and my brother-in-law would play darts in the shed and get pissed. And then it took Mate, me... You're up. in a shed playing darts. <laughs> Man, so I ended up... to be a teetotaler. I, sp- I, spent, I spent four months last year living in my sister's shed, fucking drinking quite a lot every night, um, playing darts against myself a lot of the time, on the fucking dole. And I was like, I'm exactly where I thought I'd be in life. Yeah. But about 10 years earlier than I yeah, expected. absolutely. <laughs> Coronavirus absolutely threw a spanner in the works for so many people. The worst story I heard was uh, my friend who I used to do radio with back in the day. Uh, she's now a pilot for American Airlines. She lost her job during COVID, had a house in Chicago, had to give that up. Trump said Americans first. So every other pilot, foreign pilot had to leave. So ah. she left after getting her job at American Airlines. She just had to leave, give it all up. And she ended up in the Sunshine Coast, in the backyard, in a tent at her mum's house, drinking um, goon. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. Wow, that's. I mean, my my fuck s- that virus. It, it ha- listen, I drove up from. I hired a car. I didn't even want to go through an airport. That's how paranoid I was. I hired a car in Sydney to drive um, to my sisters in Brisbane, and I thought, oh, the hire cars were so cheap. By the way. That was a crazy thing. They were yeah. like fucking $25 a day or something for some reason because no one was going anywhere. And um, uh, I thought to myself, well, it's the end of the world and, you know, all my friends are going to die. And, you know, I, I really did because they were pumping us full of fear, man. All we were mm. seeing was images from Italy and where was it? It was like Italy and China. Yeah, Italians wasn't it? with bubble helmets. Yeah, Those yeah. And, people fucking... like, oh. <laughs> like, and I was like, Jesus, you we're know, I, I used to smoke so much. It's you know, a black my, death. Yeah, I, th- I thought we're fucked and, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, but with that with that in mind, I still thought, hmm, I might stop in Nimbin for a couple of days on my way to Brisbane, right? Because <laughs> I've got a great mate. Oh, you probably know Nick the Hippie. 
Uh, I've never met him. Oh well, he, so he's one of my mates um, who I met on the mining tours. But I know of him. Yeah. So he's he's a fucking great guy, gentle soul, just a lovely, lovely man. And he he had a crazy, he had a crazy period as a comedian where he was in a show called Wild Colonial Psychos with Chopper Reed. Um, Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson. Yeah, I, I, used, uh, I did a few. And support. Warwick Kappa, and yeah. also sometimes Roger the Dodger Rogerson, the crooked New South Wales cop. And they would all get up, and, and, and he reckons they were all complete A-grade psychopaths, right? Absolutely. Like, complete fucking psychopaths. And all of them were bending his mind, fucking his head up. You know, Chopper used to fucking bully him to make him go and buy him needles and shit like this. And and it really fucked him up. But um, And he was like the light entertainment. He was like the hippie character that would do this this fucking comedy act. So he's been living in, he'd been living in Nimbin for years. So I said, I'm going to come up and see you. Uh, so I did that and it was funny cause him and his housemate, oh God, his house was beautiful as well. It was this beautiful fucking, just, a, it was a Queenslander style house in Nimbin or just outside Nimbin, you know, lush green views and the hills and everything. And he was the one, for, he said to me, you know, I know you're fucking thinking everything's over and all that, but this could be a great opportunity for someone like you. Someone like you could come out of this really well. And that was the first time I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe don't think about this as a bad thing. And to be honest, man. I've made it work for me this whole pandemic. Like, yeah, it's been shit for comedy, but I I did comedy flat out in April and I was, I'm still, I can still do it. Mm. It came back to me very, very fast. I, I hosted shitloads of shows in April at the comedy festival. Um, and, and I was good as well. Partly because I'm not drinking anymore. My brain was just a bit sharper. You're you just know? on it. Yeah. Um, but, but I've, you know, I've, I've utilized the government help. I'm, I'm, the government is paying for me to retrain barbering and hairdressing. So I'm going to have two qualifications to fall back on. And it's just just doing something, just learning a trade from scratch at my age has taught me a lot about myself, you know, a lot about, you know, you learn something else about yourself in having to apply. And and also what part of it. What did you learn? Can you I don't know. It? It's just that, that, that if you put your mind to it, you can learn lots of different things that, that we're capable of, well, of, of course, programming we're... ourselves with lots of stuff. And in a lot of ways, I'm at school going, wow, if I put this much effort as much effort into writing jokes as I have into learning how to fucking section hair, mm. um, I'd probably have been a lot better comedian. But I think a lot of comedians, I think of myself more as like a naturally funny person than a, than a full on, like I'm not obsessed with sitting down writing jokes all the time. Um, I have a lot of funny thoughts and I make notes of them, but I don't write complete jokes very often. Well, your style is anecdotal. I'm pretty anecdotal. You know, so it, it seems like stream of consciousness and you like to tell stories. I have, I, I can write um, I think you just, fully formed jokes. Well, of course you can, yeah. But I like, you seem in your natural element when you're just telling a story and you allow the jokes to come to the surface, which they do. Yeah, I'm not one of those... There's a, you're not well, a Seinfeld the, where da, 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 that's da, right. Da, 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 I call da, da, them like I call them like scientific comedians. Like yes, that, like a comedy for them is like an Science equation felt. they have to solve. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're like where, where where it's like x plus plus equals and and that's one type of comedy and it's very valid. Yeah. Not a lot of those comedians are naturally hilarious. Mm. It's a funny thing. It's, it's very it's a funny thing. Yeah. But but they you go on tour with them and they're fucking boring. Oh, they are. They they're the sit there like idiots. That's right. It's um, it's bizarre, but they tend to do better because <laughs> because they're more sensible. Because yeah. they don't go out every, they don't treat every show like the greatest victory of all time. Yeah. Like, hey, we conquered the world again. Let's get, <laughs> let's kill another million brain cells, you know, um, until you got none left. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, I basically the pandemic, and you know, I've I've learned, yeah, ju I've just learned that for me personally, comedy was a kind of an addiction. Um, that it it was an addiction, and the lifestyle itself was was also enabling me um, to to indulge in addictions that were sort of killing me in a way. I, I genuinely believe that, and I can see it. But now you've got other things happening in your life that stand up can become an addition to your life. That's right. I, I I'm not quitting comedy, yeah. but I'm going to do it. You're in ready a much, to let it back in. Now. I'm going to I'm going to do it in a much healthier way. Yeah. And 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 here's the other thing. I never had. One thing I always struggled with was relatable content to talk about, right? Because I never, I didn't have kids. I had, I'd only worked in rock and roll mainly, mm. things like that. So, I, you know, you get a lot of normal people with normal lives and their comedy tends to go down the best with crowds because mm. they go, oh, my dog does that or my kids do that or whatever, right? 
And I, I, I didn't have a great deal of that. I would always be doing some mad fucking story about something that happened to me in the Middle East or whatever. Kicking a guy in the ass <laughs> yeah, in Bahrain. Right. Yeah. You know when you've... You remember that? You, you know, know when you've just assaulted a fucking sheikh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but but I'm, I'm, I think that this experience of retraining and then and then re-entering, the, you know, sort of having a regular job or working a hair salon as well, I'm hoping that I'm just going to be able to talk about that. And I think my, ne- my new niche is probably going to be the hair guy. But it, mate, the, like women for a start, it's like every fucking woman in the crowd can relate to hairdressing type jokes. Yeah. Because a big part of a woman's life is going to a hairdresser. For men, mm. not so much. That's why, although I've signed up first for barbering, I'm leaning more into doing hairdressing because I'm much, you get a much bigger engagement, a much more meaningful times when you do a woman's hair. How long is it going to take you to, to learn how to cut a woman's hair? I can already cut women's hair. Yeah, like, can you like, put foils in it and tint it and all I'm that not, shit? Nah, that's, I'm doing that next year. Really? Uh, yeah, I'm doing that next year. But I, I can cut. I can do fairly good cuts, yeah. yeah. Check out, oh, if you want to have a look at the haircuts of some of my haircuts, I've got an Insta, it's pretty new, So, but I've got a um, barbering Insta that's ha-ha-chop-chop. So if you want to check out some of the haircuts I've done. Ha-ha-chop-chop. Hey, hey, if any of the listeners want a free fucking haircut, man, like, just um, add me on Insta, DM me, say you heard me on Johnny's podcast, and currently I'm cutting hair at Swanston Street um, three days a week. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, I cut hair on Swanston Street. So men and women, I do both. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So you're cutting, um, you're, you're, you're not using mannequins anymore? Oh, no. I've, for a long time? Um, How long have you been cutting human beings for? Oh, a few months. I've done, I've done less than 100 cuts. I think I've done about maybe 40 to 50 women's and maybe have you fucked any up or you've men. gone I thought you were going to say have you fucked any clients <laughs> Jesus. oh Jesus John. have you fucked any uh, up uh, where you've gone uh oh I've got to call the boss I've had like hey this is actually I'm glad you brought that up because I, I've noticed that I get a certain something out of hair that like a substitute for what I'm missing from get doing comedy because trust me when you Working on someone's head, it is a little bit like a one-on-one gig. It's fucking nerve-wracking, man. It's nerve-wracking, but it's a it's a piece of art that you're sculpting. It can be. It's not. And, and they've got a huge invested interest. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like an audience where they can walk away going, that was good. That's right. They carry it with them and go, bro, this was amazing. Thank you. And that's why so far I've been enjoying women, um, doing women more, because like 80% of the women I've cut are like, oh, I love it. It's great. Blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, they give more, don't they? And most guys are just like, yeah, whatever, you know. That, that's my experience. Um, well, we're, we're just simple, I but, guess. But I do get something out of that. And, and that I think it's the comedian in me that's more inclined to hairdressing or women's because they give more of, more feedback mm. and it's more like a crowd appreciating mm. you. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Yeah, it's great. It just fills you. But it does it does give you a really good feeling uh, when, you've, when, when someone is really happy with their hair. And like I say, that's mainly only happened to be with women. Uh, the few times... I haven't had a really, really bad disastrous one yet but but i've had a few times where i fucked up but they didn't know and i was really cold sweat and my heart was pounding and i'm like oh, what did shit. you do that made your heart pound like what oh was the so it's like so when you're doing the hair at the back they you've got to set the length like say they've say, said at the back i want it to be this length so you set a guideline with the first section so you take the bit at the bottom of the nape and you do the section but sometimes and i learned the hard way that that first section could be significantly shorter than um, the, the rest layer. of it. Yep. So you cut the guy there and then realize, oh, wait, I've just cut that like fucking way too short. five inches higher than what they said. Yeah. And oh, so, five inches higher. Oh, like way higher. So wow. then I've gone, oh, shit. And so the one time I did that, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to re, like from every other section, I'm just going to do it the right and just hope they don't notice. Yeah. But in a professional salon, that could really get you in a lot of trouble. What's the hardest thing to do to a woman's hair? Just be clear, I'm doing that at school, not at... School, not, yeah, school, school. Yeah, just at school. Um, what's the hardest thing to do to a woman's hair? Uh, is it... I've heard, just, this is all I've heard. Get uh, cum out of it. it <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's a comedy show, you know. Uh, is it turning a woman's hair blonde from brown or no? Uh, pro... I'm not, I, because you going, that's not, hairdressing and that's color and I'm doing that next year. Although right, okay. because I work in a hair salon, I deal with that, but I can't, I can't answer that definitively. I, I must say, um, I find, are you wrapping a girl's hair in foil yet or not yet? 
I help. I help doing it. What does that do? Why oh, you... that's that's the foils is where you put all the like the bleach and the color. The peroxide. Yeah, on section. So you wrap it up in foils and sections. You'd be good at rolling up foil. I, <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like I'm working for some drug lord when I'm doing because we do have to fold the foils at work. It's a very annoying fucking thing to have to do actually. Yes. Um, but yeah, so so hair's. I think if there's any, I, I think hair is quite a good. Um, for me, I chose it because it was a pretty fast turnaround in how long it took to get qualified, and I think it's it's social and it's all you deal. For me, it's like eight shows a day. You know what I mean? Eight appointments. You're dealing with eight different it's clients. Fucking great, or, man. Yeah. So I, we I quite, need that as comedians. I work part time in a pub and I enjoy it because I'm constantly conversing with people, whether go. they're telling me their problems or how race six went or how their wife's doing or how their husband's going. I fucking love it. Yeah. I get right into them. Yeah, and I just really enjoy listening to their life. And I need that. I could not stand the thought of being back in London doing nothing all day on the couch oh, no. just to catch a train to do a gig because I didn't need to work in London. We had so much gigs on the That's go. Right. We could just fucking bum around. And that was the worst thing for me. Yeah. Whereas now I enjoy going to work because it's social interaction. See that? So you've hit the nail on the head there. All that waiting around time used to make me anxious. All that I could never really enjoy myself until the show was over. Mm. And so yeah, I I I I go to bed at fucking ten p.m. now, ten thirty p.m. I've been doing it for a year. I wake up at six thirty a.m. every morning, man. Mm. Um, and I fucking love it. I fucking love. And that's one thing about hair as well is you pretty much have your nights to yourself. So if I do get when I do get to a point to, you know, start booking in gigs again, You're I can free. do hair in the day and do comedy at night, and that's great. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and if in the future I do comedy haircutting shows, then, then then that'll be good as well. But we'll see what happens, man. All right, man. We're going to leave it there. We've yeah, been that going was on huge. On. That, we covered a lot of shit there, man. Lots of shit. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me, Johnny. Always a fucking pleasure. Never a chore. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. And come in sometime and I'll fucking shave your head. Ha, 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 ha.